Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Bird Note. Hey, girly bird. Look at me. Look at what I got. Ladybird. Hey, Ladybird. I'm over here. This is the call of the purple-crested, yellow-striped, blue-ruffed spruce grouse, one of nature's most obnoxious birds. Plumage. That's what this is. I got the plumage, baby. Now, let's make some eggage. You know what I mean? The grouse uses his ostentatious display to attract mates. Sup, baby girl? Go away. Say again? I'm not attracted to you. Not attracted? What? Am I hearing this? I am the persona birdification of attractive. Look at that yellow stripe. Look at that yellow stripe. It's not all about the stripe, at least not for me. Right. Also the purple crest? Who else has this crest? I got other male grouses asking me, who does your crest, bird bro? Look, if we have eggs, then I need to sit on them, which means I need someone to get food for me. And you don't seem like the type that would do that. No way I can do that. I got birds and bees in different maple trees. I cannot be caged. Then we're not gonna, you know, do it. The female of this species has evolved to make intelligent mate choices. Can you imagine being stuck with that for a whole mating cycle? So the next time you're about to be a jerk at a holiday party, remember the purple-crested, yellow-striped, blue-ruffed spruce grouse. Hey, hey, baby, where you flying off to? Want some cracked corn? I can get us some cracked corn. We can Netflix and chill. For Bird Note, I'm Sir Ray Hardman. And with more, here's Colin McEnroe. Yes, Nestflix and chill. It doesn't always work that way for an obnoxious bird, though. Uh, that was Kevin McDermott, by the way, as uh, the obnoxious bird. And, of course, Sir Ray Hardman is the host of Bird Note. You know it's Wolfie. Uh, yes, we are going to be talking about this kind of thing today. We're going to be talking about how animals select mates, uh, why it might be possible to rethink part of the Darwinian paradigm that maybe you were taught in high school or in college. I should tell you that if you are, I don't know, priggish about animals, we will in the second segment of today's show be discussing duck penises in some detail. And we might in the final segment be talking about penis bones and why, for example, why many animals, including most primates, have penis bones, but human beings and I think spider monkeys do not. Now you are warned. And that will either mean that you don't miss a second of this show or that you I don't know what you'll do, actually. Uh, But joining us to talk about this, to lead us in a discussion of this, is Richard Prum. He is evolutionary ornithologist, professor of ornithology at Yale, and curator of ornithology at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. And he's the author of The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. So first of all, welcome to our conversation, sir. 
Great. Thanks. It's uh, wonderful to be here. So in that introduction, you heard a bird, a male bird who was under the impression that it was that he was in the driver's seat, that, uh, in fact, he had attributes that would allow him to dominate the process of selecting a female mate. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's sort of, I mean, those of us who just have a vague idea of, of Darwin and Darwinian theory, that, I think that's sort of one of the kind of calcified ideas we have. Well, that was uh, maybe the most entertaining bird note ever. (laughs) It mashed together lots of elements, many of which are related to the question, but was a kind of a mosh-up. But uh, you're right. um, There is a a general impression in evolutionary biology, a consensus, if you will, that ornament, sexual ornament in nature is a lot like uh, uh, a biological match.com profile filled Mm. with information that mates need to know. And this is about objective quality, like who are his people? Does he come from a good egg? Uh, Does he have a good diet? Uh, Does he smoke? Or even what is he smoking, right? These are the kind of things that mates might want to know and that people assume that the peacock's tail or the wood thrush song or your purple crested grouse, that these ornaments have evolved to provide uh, practical information to potential mates. So what would be the alternative way of thinking about this? Yeah, now this uh, idea has a lot of power, a lot of uh, a lot of sway, uh, but I actually think it's incomplete. And interestingly, it's historically new. It's not actually Darwin's original idea. Uh, what Darwin proposed was a theory of sexual selection by mate choice, in which mates select individuals select mates with ornaments that um, they are essentially attracted to, that they like. Um, and this kind of aesthetic view uh, can lead to a different kind of evolution in which there's no objective quality being judged. It's merely the pleasure of the individual making the choices. Right. I think it's good if we get down to uh, some specific examples here because it'll help people understand. So I'm going to have you describe the behavior of the Argus pheasant. Sure. So the Argus pheasant is uh, maybe one of the most extreme, aesthetically extreme species on the planet. The, they live in Southeast Asia in the jungle. Uh, the females, it's a, it's a chicken-like bird, right, where the female is about two feet long, and the male is uh, four feet, almost six feet long. And he has these elaborate long wing feathers, which he usually doesn't display. But uh, uh, the female does all the nesting. She Uh, creates the nest, uh, lays the eggs, cares for them on her own. But she visits males at their display areas in order to mate. And during the display, the male uh, opens his wings and his feathers are kind of uh, everted like a blown-out umbrella uh, over in a sort of hemisphere over the female. And on those feathers are uh, several hundred uh, round balls. They actually perfectly uh, pigmented to look like uh, spherical golden balls. And they're hanging in the air over her head. Uh, and uh, and uh, she uh, sits there, uh, actually rather um, uh, stoically, or <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and chooses the male she likes, uh, ultimately. But one of the interesting things that Argus Pheasant shows is that uh, um, beauty can be extreme. Mm-hmm. And when individuals are making very, very particular choices, uh, what evolves are extraordinary ornaments. And one of the elements of your bird note uh, uh, um, segment that's interesting is that really aesthetic extremity, real beauty, um, comes about as a result of extremity of failure. So most Argus pheasants never mate. Um, 
the females turn out to be very picky, and they prefer a certain subset of the available males, the ones that they find most beautiful. Uh, and that leads to the evolution of, um, a, a, you know, a, an extraordinary sort of indescribably complicated ornament. Right. So let's go back to the Argus for a second. So the Argus is doing all the things that you've described. And, and, and really, you know, the male is going to elaborate lengths to do this. This involves a um, kind of peculiar positioning of his talons for stability. And he's, uh, as I recall, kind of peeking through one little gap. He's got, like coquettishly like a like an 18th century, you know, dangerous liaisons uh, moment of peeking from behind an ornamental, ornamental fan, right? Yeah, he, he, his, his, his wings are extended in front of his face, and he's bowing down, and the feathers are extended up in the air, and he's sort of uh, peeking through a little gap in, at, the, at his wrist at the, at the female's reaction uh, to her. And actually, when uh, the first uh, ornithologist to see this was a guy named William Beebe in the 1920s. He went to Borneo and uh, tried all these uh, different attempts to see it. He built a treehouse and a blind by the, by the display area. And he, he dug a hole and he spent a week in a foxhole uh, every day covered with branches until a female finally visited. And so he was observing this incredible display. Of course, he's having kind of a religious experience there. He's been waiting for years or, uh, in his life and then months in the field to try to see this. And he noticed that the... Fe- that the uh, the female Argus was just sitting there. Right. She it, seemed it unmoved. Even, it might even be worth reading. Here's William Beebe writing about that. There is no question in my mind that the wonderful coloring, the elaborate ball and socket illusion of the ocelli, the rhythmic shivering of the feathers which makes these balls revolve, are all lost as aesthetic phenomena upon the nonchalant little hen. So, but he's like making a whole bunch of assumptions, right? Uh, I, I, I think he's actually doing a kind of reverse anthropomorphism. Uh, like I say, he's having a religious experience uh, down in the foxhole fighting the leeches. And finally, he sees this amazing display and expects the female to be sort of equivalently frenetic. But in fact, the female is actually a connoisseur. Uh, she is the agent uh, that, uh, or females in, uh, in together are the agents whose choices have led to these extreme ornaments. So her, 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 her behavior is a lot more like, um, you know, an art critic walking into a, 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 the latest show in Soho, looking around at the paintings. Is he going to uh, drop down and weeping? No, he's going to say, hmm, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, well, he's going to analyze, right? And that's what she's doing. Uh, although it is about her, uh, about what she likes, um, she's very picky. And in fact, most males uh, are rejected. And that's why the Argus pheasant is so beautiful. And, but I mean, some people looking at that would say, well, so that's weird, right? Because I mean, first of all, the male is doing a lot of stuff to call attention to himself, but he's putting himself in a difficult position. So whatever the Australian version of a coyote, I guess a Tasmanian devil or something can come right along and, and snap him right up. Maybe this isn't the smartest uh, or most efficient way to sort out one's mate preferences. Um, so there are a number of different possible explanations for that. And let's let's reject a couple just because they're fun. One of them yeah. uh, is the so-called Smucker's uh, hypothesis. Or you call it that. <laughs> yeah. It originally comes from uh, 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 Amos Zahavi, an Israeli um, ornithologist, who proposed that the, the honesty uh, of the information, the quality information communicated that by the display, is a result of the cost of the investment. So by making these really costly feathers— 
uh, that are really long and huge. And by exposing himself to predators during display, the animal, is, the male is actually showing, see, I'm better than the other guys. I've actually survived with this, with this, uh, with this costly ornament. And that's why uh, I'm, you should pick me, right? I'm showing how good I am because I've been able to survive even despite the costs. Right, so it's also the, called the handicap principle, yeah. but it's like the Smucker's principle. I call it because uh, there used to be, uh, or there was, it is a jelly who used to have the the uh, the slogan: "If with a name like Smucker's, it's got to be good." And so what that means is the name Smucker's is so off-putting, the sound of it, that the jelly has to be better than your regular jelly in order to to to, to survive with that name. And 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 uh, this is a, a very popular idea, but if you follow the logic of it, it turns out it's it's uh, it, it's got real flaws. Uh, and uh, and I think the the alternative, of course, is that the uh, Argus pheasant and other uh, uh, sexual ornaments. Are, are, are merely uh, forms of beauty, uh, beauty that's co-evolved with the, the preferences, that is, that has shaped and been shaped by, uh, by the choices that uh, other individuals have made. Well, so Ruskin, uh, the art critic, famously said the most beautiful things in the world are useless, um, peacocks and lilies, for, exa- for example. So, but wouldn't it be, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I had always assumed that when you see something like that, which looks purposeless, that it's chromosomally linked to a whole bunch of other stuff that is significant. In other words, in looking at this incredibly beautiful, almost mesmerizing, and very nuanced feather display, if the, if the female is making these very discerning choices, those discerning choices, she's effectively reading things that are adaptive. In other words, resistance to disease or some other kind of hardiness, something that would, in fact, mean that this guy's genes, that this guy's genetic material would have a better chance of, dis, uh, of surviving in the future. Right. right. So this is the really the, 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 uh, the crux of the debate. Uh, really, most evolutionary biologists believe that adaptation by natural selection is a strong force that dictates all the important details of the evolutionary process. And Darwin's theory of aesthetic mate choice uh, was really an exception to this idea. Um, and so it's a challenge to that notion. And so everyone would like... Um, ornaments and complexity like the peacock's tail or the Argus pheasant to indicate quality because they want uh, beauty to not be sort of off the ranch on its own, but actually explainable by adaptation. Uh, But the fact is that uh, that uh, theory, it it, it fails to explain aesthetic uh, complexity. Uh, And the alternative is that it's uh, like uh, an irrationally exuberant market bubble. It's like Bitcoin. Right, it, it, it's a socially organized kind of of uh, of value uh, that is not practical in the least, uh, and in some cases can actually go counter to um, to adaptation. Right, uh, and this view uh, is. Um, you know, but I've been character, or characterized in the book as you know Darwin's really dangerous idea, and it's a it's a it's a Darwinian idea that's so dangerous it had to be drummed out of Darwinism, right? So that the modern view of Darwinism is very much in line with the idea that ad, that you know uh, ornament is a kind of adaptation, but this wasn't uh, Darwinian uh, in the least. In, in uh, part of the, uh, the the mission of the book is to uh, revive this. Um, authentic complexity of uh, of what Darwin's view really was. 
So uh, an, an interesting direction for us to go to and would be to the, in the direction of uh, birds called mannequins. Now, uh, you write quite a bit in your book about the club-winged mannequin. Uh, I don't think we were able to find a really good example uh, of that. But we're stealing from a real bird note, not the fake bird note we did at the beginning, but a real bird note. Um, here's what it, we should say. There's a lot of different kinds of mannequins, and they're, they're crammed into what is a rel- relatively smaller geographical space, and that may have something to do with the conversation we're having. So here's what a white-bearded mannequin sounds like. So, um, and this, so that little uh, firecracker popping uh, sound that you uh, hear. The, 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 uh, the snaps and the riffles are, are actually mechanical sounds. They are, they are ornaments like songs, but they are made with the wing feathers, uh, which is an extraordinary thing. And the important thing about that is it shows that beauty can be innovative. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, uh, it can create a whole new way of communicating. And that's an exciting thing shown by by mannequins like the uh, like the white bearded. And by the way, listening to that makes me uh, makes me scratch my mosquito bites and feel humid <laughs> because that's a very tropical bird. Uh, and the uh, that's that's that, that's what you feel when you're listening to those sounds in the wild. So th- there are more than fifty um, subsets of mannequins, subspecies of of mannequin, and and so explain what uh, this might be an example of aesthetic radiation. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the popular concepts in in evolutionary biology is the idea of adaptive radiation. You know, like the uh, like the Darwin's finches or or uh, you know cichlid fishes. These are a, a single common ancestor that diversifies and ecologically radiates into a whole bunch of very diverse and very disparate uh, descendant species, right, through adaptation by natural selection. So one of the things I propose in the book is a concept of, of aesthetic radiation, the idea that beauty can diversify and evolve from a single uh, ancestral form to encompass a wide variety of ornament. And that this process is not necessarily adaptive, uh, but can be uh, uh, both arbitrary and aesthetic. Uh, and I think mannequins are a great example, pheasants are another. These are cases where the female does all the nesting uh, and chooses among available males uh, for a mate. And the, mates, the males contribute nothing but sperm to reproduction. And so they can be uh, vary tremendously between the most and the least successful males. And as a result, uh, beauty happens, as I put it. Right. So, and, and everything that we're saying, I guess we haven't really said this out loud, but everything that we're saying about this is suggestive of the fact that the female's choice uh, is of greater importance probably than anything the male might be doing. Yeah. In this case, and I think the aesthetic view of mate choice uh, really identifies the individual bird making the choice as the as essentially the agent uh, of evolution the and this kind of uh, agency uh, by in this ca- in the case of mannequins female choice is what drives uh, the radiation uh, and males are responding uh, like uh, in response to these if you will market forces and creating um, different kinds of ornaments that that uh, that will uh, that will uh, succeed. And whatever, you know, what we see in descended species is a history of, of what has happened uh, in the aesthetic past, like uh, uh, in, in many ways like uh, art history. 
like the radiation of genres like painting or sculpture or music. And it seems as though I, I, the mannequins uh, have something that somewhat re- resembles a television shows of my youth, like The Dating Game and uh, television shows of modernity, like The Bachelorette, right? There are these kind of, I mean, she really gets to, to review a bunch of males at once and make a decision. Sure. And what's interesting about that is that, that uh, mannequins, in many species of mannequins, the males aggregate. They congregate and defend territories close to one another. And those territories are just display places. They're not really... Um, uh, um, uh, you know, they don't include any resources other than mating opportunities for the females. Uh, this kind of arena is called a lek, and uh, this is a, an example of an extreme breeding system. And leks provide the most um, extreme opportunity for female choice in in, uh, in 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 nature. So, what we, I mean, once again, let's go back to the sort of. Um, Traditional idea of uh, of Darwinian selection. A lot of it, a lot of our our latent thinking about this is based on aggression too. So we imagine these, you know, these uh, planes where two antelopes or something and they lock horns and they fight, and you know, one of them uh, prevails and the other one is sent away, and it's uh, all about strength and dominance and aggression. But you're saying in these situations, this may be a purely aesthetic choice that the that the female, not to anthropomorphize, is saying, "I, I like the way you look better than I like the way the these other dudes look." Yeah, the lek provides females with a, a kind of extraordinary stimulus mm-hmm. where in one place they can see lots of different males, compare them, uh, and, and ex- observe their dancing. In many of these species, the female may ex- exhibit some kind of uh, sexual behavior for uh, half an hour, 45 minutes a year, uh, maybe a little bit more. We don't have a lot of that data, but um, she'll visit a few of these different leks and then select a mate, and that's it. So uh, she's compacted into this small portion of her life uh, a whole richness of of choice. What do the male, um, What do the males do about this? In other words, they oh, can't lock horns and fight. So what do they do? Yeah, well, they, well, they, well, they would like to fight, but of course uh, they can't because if they fight, then females will not mate at that lek. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the uh, features of lekking is that it um, it has evolved uh, through female choice uh, for males that get along with each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if there's too much uh, competition, too much physical fighting or disruption at the lek, then the female will simply proceed to another lek or select another mate. So uh, this is a kind of interesting way in which um, female choice, mate choice, has evolved in order to uh, change uh, competitive male behavior into a kind of cooperative form that facilitates the aesthetic uh, desires of the female. She's really changed maleness in a way, um, in mannequins, uh, in a way that provides her with a kind of aesthetically rich experience. This may play out in the human sphere with the notion of a wingman, right? You show up with another guy. <laughs> well, uh, in, in these cases, literal these are, yeah, yeah. These are these are uh, put a whole new a whole new uh, spin on wingmen. For example, the uh, the blue mannequin or, or Chirizophia caudata. You can have a, a team of five or six males or seven males all displaying at the same time in the same territory, uh, literally on the same branch, uh, and the female is uh, sitting, you know, inches away, uh, and if she likes that that group, she'll give a note and then the dominant male will give a call and then all the, all the other males uh, leave uh, and only one male mates. And those other guys are basically cooperating, helping that 
uh, alpha male recruit a potential mate in hopes of someday inheriting the perch. Right. Um, but the they but the, so uh, I refer to this as you know bromance before romance. In order to uh, win in the competition for females, you have to be able to demonstrate that you can get along uh, and not not fight with other males. Right. The other birds, uh, the other male birds are wearing bas- ba- backwards baseball caps and playing video games and stuff while the mating is going on. All right, we have to take a little break. Uh, we're going to go back. We have more things to explain to you. We'll be joined by another guest, but Richard Prum is with us for the entire time. His book, The Evolution of Beauty, is explaining all of this stuff. It's a must for giving, especially if you live with a bird. All right, we've been talking to and will continue to talk to Richard O. Prum, O for Ornithology. Uh, his book is The Evolution of Beauty, uh, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. Uh, but I know you heard me say at the beginning of the show we were going to talk about duck penises, and you've been sitting there saying, well, well where are the duck penises? Uh, here they come. Patricia Brennan is joining us, evolutionary biologist, behavioral ecologist, and visiting lecturer at Mount Holyoke College, one of the people who really has done a landmark uh, research into this question. So first of all, welcome to our conversation, Patricia Brennan. Hi, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, you know, we I was describing uh, as we were going into the, the previous break that kind of traditional notion we have of, um, you know, two male hoofed animals having a fight locking antlers, one of them besting the other who slinks off and then the one who wins gets to sort of sexually dominate. Uh, but it isn't always that way. And, and so Richard has been describing uh, the way that uh, females make essentially aesthetic discernments. And under the best of circumstances, that's kind of what can happen in the duck world, right? Females can be very choosy and and pick a male after extensive uh, viewing of his plumage and whatever else there is to look at. Absolutely, yeah. So ducks are, uh, I guess, uh, famous for being uh, some of the most beautiful birds um, uh, out there. They have the males have incredible plumage, um, all sorts of uh, structural colors and pigments and weird shape uh, feathers. And um, not only do they look beautiful, but they also have um, some of the most amazing uh, courtship displays as well. They were studied, you know, many decades ago and, and have been very well known as examples of, you know, the extremes to which the males will go to get chosen um, by females, I guess. And and um, uh, the males, uh, the, there's variation among species, of course, but um, oftentimes the males will congregate and essentially display um, together to females that are coming in and essentially checking them out to figure out which is the male that they like best. And this is a process that can take, um, uh, you know, quite a bit of, of time. It, the females are, are, are examining different males, and, and finally they, they find the one that they like, and that's the guy that they will uh, typically pair bond with. Uh, for the season. And for the ducks that are, uh, you know, the whole Arctic migratory ducks in North America, then that pair will actually stick together through the winter and go to the breeding grounds um, together. So by the time they get to breeding, uh, they're a pretty well-established um, couple, if you will. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the female um, uh, will be getting ready to start laying eggs. Uh, and that's the point where the, the, the duck secret sexual life really comes out to the 
to the foreground because um, so far it sounds like, you know, the females are doing so well and they chose their male, which is everything that you and Rick have been discussing. Um, But what happens in many dog species at that point is that um, there are many males that are um, just not uh, able to find a mate um, for reasons that have to do with their ecology. And those males um, oftentimes will form bachelor groups where they will fly around looking for females who are in breeding condition and otherwise are already paired with a male that they already chose. Um, And they will essentially uh, come down and and force them to copulate. Right. And so I want to get to, in a second, what happens when that happens. Um, But but Rick Prum, this is a great example of of what we've been talking about because it's something you can walk down to your local park and see. And you see it, people see it all the time, and they see these mallards. And what they see is that the male is very striking looking. He's got a green head. He's got this, he's got that. And the female is comparatively, in our anthropomorphic uh, way of speaking, more drab. Um, but what we don't understand, and I think what you're sort of saying, Rick, is that in it's a buyer's market for the female. She has a fa- she and her the rest of her sex have essentially forced the male to evolve into a more interesting looking animal. Yeah, they they they've exercised their choice. And one of the interesting things about the aesthetic view is once you realize that female ducks are are agents in the evolution of their own species, that is, that they are the uh, active uh, choosers, uh, you can understand what happens evolutionary for the first time when that freedom of choice is infringed uh, by sexual coercion or sexual violence, as we see in uh, in uh, in many duck species, and 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 so really the the aesthetic view has set us up to understand what's going on in sexual coercion and sexual violence in in ducks uh, in in a new way. All right, so let's go back to Patty Brennan about this. So we've got these rogue ducks, uh, unwanted male ducks, showing up, but they still want uh, a piece of the action, as it were, um, and so they've evolved uh, a genital mechanism to kind of help them out with this. Explain what that is. Yeah, so what um, what we've discovered um, in our research is that these uh, males essentially um, have evolved a completely novel way of um, uh, averting their penis. So it turns out birds, the vast majority of birds don't have a penis at all. The few species that, that do have, uh, that still have a, a penis, keep it in a little pouch inside out in their cloaca out of view. And it actually operates with lymph rather than blood. So it's a very um, uh, novel evolutionary uh, uh, change. And what they do is, um, uh, what we discovered is that the males actually can explosively avert their penis and ejaculate in about a third of a second. And so what that, what that means is that even if a female is resisting, you know, if these rock males are going out there and trying to grab them and trying to force them into copulation, the females are always struggling. They're always resisting. But the male, if he can get his, his penis anywhere near her, her cloaca, he will actually have a shot at bypassing her resistance just because of these weird um, uh, er- explosive erectile mechanism that they have evolved. Right. So, and so, so it sounds like, like pretty bad news to the female so far. But, of course, um, you know, evolution is, is uh, uh, amazing <laughs> in, in many ways. And, and what, what we uh, were able to discover is that the females, of course, are not sitting ducks, <laughs> so <laughs> to speak, in that they, they really have been able to um, uh, sort of uh, go into the, the counterattack um, and evolve a mechanism 
in their own genitalia by which they can stop those males, those unwanted males, from succeeding at achieving fertilizations uh, from those forced copulations. So, uh, yeah, so what we have is kind of a genital arms race. We have uh, the um, male ducks developing these uh, almost weapon-like penises. Some of them are reverse corkscrews shaped, and some of them are, in some cases, uh, longer than the duck itself is. Uh, They're meant to be deployed speedily and get the job done quickly. Mm -hmm. Then you have the females developing um, the sort of corresponding anatomy that makes it really difficult, right? You have cul-de-sacs and dead ends and stuff like that, right? Yeah, so it's not... Is not really corresponding. It's more anti-corresponding, right? Yeah. Exactly. So it's kind of like a, a, a evolving barriers, um, and we've been I, able I to like test to, some of these I, ideas. Huh? I like to refer to this uh, that that uh, that the females have. Uh, evolved literally an anti-screw device that uh, <laughs> obs- uh, that excludes the 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 uh, corkscrew-shaped duck penis during forced uh, copulation. Exactly, and the and you know the amazing thing is that because of the way it works, the females cannot prevent the males from uh, erecting their penis and, and ejaculating. But what happens is that the penis gets stopped much closer to the entrance of the cloaca than, than would be ideal for sperm to actually make it to the fertilization sites. And so uh, the males are still ejaculating, but they ejaculate so close to the cloacal entrance that at that point it's much easier for the females to get rid of that sperm. And Patty, you're finding something similar with um, at least one species of dolphins, right? That the the bottlenose dolphins have a similar thing where men, a group of male dolphins are, are sort of uh, getting together to harass and attempt to um, to to have intercourse with one female dolphin, and it, it's a similar thing, right? Yeah, and so that's uh, literally hot of the press um, in a couple of the studies that we've uh, published just this year, um, where I think that this idea of Rick's um, that he that he brings up in the book of female sexual autonomy really driving uh, a lot of uh, amazing adaptations in nature, um, really. Uh, gets gets uh, even more support is um, that we find the same thing with dolphins, right? And so so um, uh, many species of dolphins, they, they don't uh, form pair bonds, you know, like the ducks do. Um, but the, the males, for example, in the bottlenose uh, dolphin, they, the males form coalitions and, and they will harass females who are uh, available for, for sexual reproduction uh, relentlessly. And they will, they will just chase them and chase them and chase them until the females essentially acquiesce to copulate. So it's, a, it's another form of, of coercion. Um, and so the female, um, uh, it turns out that when you look at their, at their vagina, the females have, in many species of dolphins, uh, these vaginal folds. And for a long time, we didn't know what these folds were. Um, and it was suggested that they were maybe just to keep salt water out because they're mating in, in the ocean. But um, uh, a postdoc collaborator of mine, Dr. Dara Orbach, actually, she collected a bunch of specimens, and so she came to my lab, and we um, started really examining the role of these folds. And, and what we have found is that the folds, what they do is they stop the penis shaft from going further inside the female vaginal lumen. And then... That has uh, gone along with uh, an evolution of of, uh, of a novel, um, really skinny tip on the on the top of the on the tip of the dolphin penis, that actually can then go around that vaginal fold into the now 
narrower lumen of the dolphin vagina. So it's, it's, it's very similar to what we see in ducks, is this, this arm race where the, the males are harassing the females and the females are saying, no, wait a minute, I don't like that, here's a vaginal fold to block you from doing this. And then the male responds by saying, oh, okay, but wait a minute, here's my little uh, filiform penis tip that I'm going to still try to use to get up in there. And so what we see across species is that in, in um, uh, other species, uh, they have, uh, the females can have many, many of these vaginal folds. Um, and so we're, we're finding that, that this is likely being driven by this uh, conflict between uh, males and females so that the females can reassert um, uh, control of their own uh, sexual choices. So I feel as though we should end this segment on a more positive note, because this does really sound like a very unfortunate aggression-based arms race, notwithstanding the the ultimate genital ingenuity of female bottlenose dolphins and ducks. So, um, uh, Rick Prum, let's tell a nicer story, because it's kind of the antithesis of this, right? Let's talk about the bowerbirds. The, The bowerbirds do something different. You really do have something closer to true female autonomy. Yeah, well, the, in the case of the uh, the ducks, there's an arms race, and and females are still successful, even when forty, fifty percent of the copulations might be forced copulations. Only two percent of the of the eggs in the nest uh, in the ducks are extra pair fertilized. So that that means that these females have a kind of ninety-eight percent successful birth control method that they can deploy when they want. That's like yeah, FDA there's, approvable, there's right? Something very but har- in, there's but, something very Harvey uh, Weinstein about that whole right, story. Right. It, it, it's very, it, 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 there are costs on both sides, but there are birds that, that follow a different path. And the bowerbirds are one of them. And for example, the, the bowerbirds are like the mannequins and the grouse. The female does the nesting by herself and visits display places where the males build a construction in this case. It's called a bower. And it's not a nest, although it's made of sticks and it's uh, ornamented with found objects. The bower is really a seduction theater. And the males make the bower because the females like it. And female selection has led to a radiation in the different forms of bowers. Um, so when the female uh, chooses or visits a male, she sits inside the bower, and the, uh, and the male will display around her. Um, and these displays are often quite violent. They make uh, loud mechanical sounds, and they jump and, and hop, uh, very physically uh, aggressive. But the structure of the bower has a special quality, which is that if the male wants to mate, he's actually prevented from doing so without giving the female an opportunity to hop out of the bower. He has to go basically around the back of the bower, which allows the female a chance to hop out the front. So, so the bower is aesthetic. It's got architecture and variety, but it has also the function to protect her, um, her freedom of choice. She can get as close as she wants to a male and, 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 and watch him as long as she likes and entirely through that time she's maintaining her freedom to choose. Right. Uh, and this is another path that I call aesthetic remodeling where the female through mate choice is transforming maleness in a way that furthers her freedom of choice. And, 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 it's, a, and it's an interesting and different a- a- aesthetic response to sexual coercion. 
All right, so we have to take a little break here. Um, I have to say, when I was reading about that, I was thinking about the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, which a lot of people have been sort of debating lately, you know, and no cabs to be had out there and all that stuff. But it turns out, in the case of the Bowerbird, the female can leave and nobody, you know, nobody's trying to concoct some kind of story about why she can't. Um, thanks so much to you, uh, Patty Brennan. Thank you for spending the time with us, evolutionary biologist, behavioral ecologist, and visiting lecturer at Mount Holyoke College. When we come back, we are going to extend some of this thinking into the human sphere, and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so stay with us. So the next time someone asks you why Donald Duck wears jackets but not pants, you know the answer is because of his penis. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with voiceover help from Sir Ray Hardman, Kevin McDermott, and Jonathan McPants. Amanda Fish selects her mates based on whether they're Pisces. The part of Bill Curry was played by Deborah Messing. And now, back to Colin. There actually is some way, some connection between these two shows, but I don't have time to explain it. Uh, we're talking right now to Richard O. Prum, uh, the uh, author of The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. So we have a limited amount of time for us, uh, but I think it's uh, time, uh, Rick Prum, to start talking uh, about us. Um, actually, uh, maybe a way to get into this. So um, back in, the, I guess, the 90s, uh, there was this show called NYPD Blue, and there was this guy on it named Sipowitz, and he was this played by Dennis Franz. He was this big hulking, and I think by some, by most standards, ugly, ugly guy. Um, and uh, he didn't sort of conform to any of the male aesthetic standards that we're aware of. But I found out that ABC was getting just just unprecedented volumes uh, of love letters, either to Franz or to the character Sipowitz. And I, I wondered about that. I want, to, I want you to hear a little bit of Sipowitz right here. Look, if anything happens to me, I want you to take care of Theo. I mean, I, I'd want it legal. It wouldn't be a financial burden on you. That's all squared away, if you're up for that. Of course I am. Hi, Daddy. Hi, Cody. Theo asked if he could call you Mom. Do you want him to call me Mom? I don't want to disrespect his mother. Well, I don't think it's disrespectful, Andy. I think his mother would want someone in Theo's life he could call mom. Someone in both your lives. Yeah, you're probably right. So, Rick Prum, at the time that that was happening, I contacted the anthropologist uh, Helen Fisher, and I said, what's going on here? And she said that, in her opinion, it was because female humans have to make both aesthetic and social choices. They, If you go back to the grasslands of Africa, they needed a big, hulking, powerful uh, person who could maybe command a lot of resources. But he had to have a small, soft, creamy center, too. He had to be willing to share his resources. He had to be so inclined. And does that work for you? Is that is that an, maybe an explanation of how the, the human animal is a little bit different? Well, there's a there's a lot of parts to that, and essentially talking about human sexuality is the most challenging thing because sure. basically all of the mechanisms 
uh, evolutionary mechanisms are, are, are going on. You have male choice, you have female choice, you have male-male competition and female-female competition. You've got uh, sexual coercion based on, uh, you know, male coercion and, and female coercion. And then on top of that, you got culture uh, in the last uh, 100 or 200,000 years or so. So that's that's the full that's the whole enchilada, right? Mm-hmm. So all of the all these elements are, are are at play now. In terms of resources, um, interestingly, there wasn't a lot of difference in resources until the uh, development of agriculture and wealth, right? You could have one guy that was a better hunter than another, but the difference between the wealthiest and the least wealthy, or the 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 the, the, the uh, individual potential mates was probably not that different. What, what does uh, uh, resonate is that uh, mate choice uh, and this, uh, an aesthetic mate choice, um, I think, has expanded in humans to include not just physical attraction, but personality and social um, attraction. So these and these other elements, whether it's um, uh, humor, honesty, um, um, empathy, are not... Uh, are not uh, uh, or they are also aesthetic. They are also the source of uh, of, uh, of, of 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 attraction. And in this sense, that uh, that um, human aesthetic mate choice has expanded from beyond uh, you know mere beauty in physical sense to 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 social and personal compatibility. And that's something that has really transformed human uh, evolution. For example, um, uh, male monkeys and and other apes. You typically contribute nothing to reproduction other than sperm. The females do all of the work. But universally in human cultures, uh, males identify with their children and actually invest in them. Uh, And how did uh, that happen? Um, uh, In the book, I uh, describe how I think that that occurred through female choice, females preferring those males that would invest. And therefore, that's where uh, your NYPD blue character comes along, um, showing that your uh, um, eager or interested in investment is is uh, essentially attractive. One and reason, for I, a good reason. One reason I felt comfortable um, playing that clip to you is because you use television in your book too. So, so one of the things that's a little bit mysterious here in the human world is same-sex attraction, same-sex behavior, um, same-sex marriages. Now, um, it, it might not seem to have any evolutionary benefit, but uh, you use will and grace as an example of one way <laughs> that uh, that that might not be the case. Yeah, well, I got I got to back up before we get where we get there. Oh, wait, one of the challenges in in human evolution is explaining, um, uh, you know, uh, the incredible transformation of male behavior that happens through between us and apes. In in apes and most old world monkeys, uh, female sexuality is controlled by some dominant male. Uh, and what happens frequently is when a new male takes over, he will go around and murder all the babies, uh, all the dependent offspring, so that the females come into estrus become fertile, and he has a new reproductive opportunity. That's called infanticide. Um, and human males are responsible for lots of terrible things in the world. Uh, but one thing they don't do uh, at any measurable rate is murder babies for their own sexual advantage. And that huge transformation occurred, I think, through female choice. Human females, between common ancestry with chimpanzees and the invention of agriculture, have really transformed 
uh, maleness in a profound way to produce uh, um, uh, social attentiveness, uh, uh, you know, uh, social cognition, uh, and uh, and and reproductive investment by 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 men. Um, and I think one of the continuations. So, and, and this has resulted, or this is a, a way in which. Uh, humans have evolved, or females have evolved, it expanded sexual autonomy, a defense again in infanticide by basically taking it apart. Um, and what does this involve? It's like, uh, well, the loss of canine teeth, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, our chimpanzees and ape males have deadly weapons in their faces. Um, how do they get rid of them? Uh, well, getting a male to give up his weapons is a, is a current political challenge in the world <laughs> today. Uh, and, and, and I think the way that humans did it was to get those males where it hurts, below the belt. They made them unsexy. And by selecting on, on males uh, that were less violent, uh, but simultaneously as, uh, as sexually stimulating and attractive, uh, they changed, changed maleness. And I think, um, and, and, and they did this in order to expand their sexual autonomy. Now, in the book, I propose that really any, any natural history of human desire has got to grapple with the fact of the variation in desire, and that is uh, same-sex attraction in, in all its varieties. And uh, in, a, in a nutshell, what I propose is that uh, f uh, both uh, female same-sex behavior and male same-sex behavior has evolved as a result of female choice uh, for um, behaviors that expand and uh, female autonomy, that is, that defend against uh, male hierarchy uh, and and sexual control. So these are uh, examples both of a defensive uh, alliances and also of a sort of aesthetic remodeling. Uh, you know, getting uh, getting males uh, uh, so that they are um, uh, more uh, um, you know socially stable. Right. So. Um, you know, it's hard, we, to, we, hard we, to get into all those details. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, and that's why people should get the book. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to land the plane <laughs> Lots here. Lots more in there. Right. Uh, and you will you can hear why uh, Will and Grace fits into this and also uh, why there is no TV show called Rosie and Rocky. Although, Rick, I think this is a good idea for a TV show with Rosie O'Donnell and, and uh, Sylvester Stallone, and it would be kind of the obverse uh, <laughs> of the Will and Grace. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the modern odd couple. Let's, let's, right? let's pitch this to Netflix. I, I think it could work. Hey, all you right. got it. So, meanwhile, well, you should read The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World in Us. It's written by Richard O. Oh for Ornithology uh, Prum. He is a, a professor of ornithology at Yale. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening today. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan. Uh, and we will be back tomorrow with a very different show because that's what we do every day. We just come up with a different show. It's not a it's evolution. Come on. It's evolution. It's evolution. It's evolution. Come on. Mom, why does my brother's beak look different than mine? I was worried you'd ask about this one day. Your brother, he's adapted. <laughs> <laughs>